0: Trouble drum, Beat out old trouble on the drum, and kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, and kick old trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out
1: Hello, AC. This is Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Kelly's doing all the um, work. Our special guest is AC. We only have special guests on this program. Hello. Hello. Well, what do you think of that introduction?
2: It was nice. Yeah, that, that's upbeat.
1: Upbeat. Well, that is upbeat yeah. because, you know, for a person to come on on a show like this... And speak to us for 56 minutes about their lives that, that's that's a lot of effort it takes a lot of effort and a lot of guts and I don't think people realize that and mm. I'm really pleased that uh, Kelly was able to twist your arm <laughs> <laughs> Now I see we usually start at the beginning because you know we're pretty boring you know i'm I'm a boring interviewer so I start at the beginning and if you've got no objections, what year were you born in nineteen eighty one. Well, you're pretty old. You're not a youngster. I thought you were about twenty, but no, no, yeah. no, no, no I'm elderly, forty years old. You've passed forty, have you? Mm,
2: just uh, last month, last month. Did, yeah.
1: Did you anything? Did you? You know, I'm, I'm nearly seventy, and the thing is, it's only when you've got to know at the end of your birthday when you're over twenty that anybody cares. Did you do anything for your fortieth?
2: I did. I had some friends, and uh, we had a gathering out at Bell's Beach, and it was really nice.
1: Bells Beach? Yeah. Are you a surfer?
2: Yeah. Oh. No. <laughs> I like the sea and yeah. Yeah, the bush out there. It's beautiful.
1: Right. So where were you born? Mm-hmm. Where were you born?
2: Uh, in Tahi or Christchurch in Aotearoa, New Zealand.
1: Ah, could you pronounce that for me again
2: slowly? Um, so Ōtōtahi. Uh-huh. Tahi is the... Um, Māori or my name for Christchurch, mm, right? Mm. And a- Aotearoa or New Zealand, right? But dual names,
1: yes. And um, does it really mean the lang- land of the long white clouds, or i have been sold to Furphy?
2: Look, well, I'm no expert on <laughs> that stuff, but it is there's a you know there's a story around it when the first people um, arrived. And, um, yeah, there
1: was cloud over the island. There was a long
2: white cloud.
1: But I don't know the details, Right, unfortunately. Oh, well, Somewhat remiss. Oh, well as you get older, yep. you'll want to delve into that. That's what happens when you get older. You worry about your mortality. Yep. But you're only 40. You've got another 60 years to go on the planet. You'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so did you uh, – are your parents still alive?
2: Yeah, both my parents are alive and both my step-parents
1: are also alive. Right, and uh, hopefully yeah. nobody's listening to the program? Yeah, hopefully
2: not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't broadcast to Aotearoa, so it should
1: be all right. It should be all right. Well, we do, okay. we do podcasts.
2: Oh, uh, true.
1: Yeah, we do podcast, and we are streaming. We do stream on 3cr.org.au. Oh, true, I hadn't thought of
2: that.
1: Yeah, so don't say anything rude about them. What was What was, okay. uh, what was early life like for a young person in New Zealand?
2: Um, well, I, I come from a Pakia or white family. I've got um, kind of heritage, mostly Scottish and Irish, mm-hmm. with some English and West African as well, or West Indian African. Um, and I grew up, my parents, you know, they'd come through the 60s and 70s, and they had, were very influenced, I guess, by the hippie years. Mm-hmm. So we were brought up vegetarian chickens out the
1: back and eating a lot of lentils and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I could have
2: known your parents. Yeah.
1: They'd be my age, wouldn't they? They'd be nudging 70. Yeah,
2: my dad turned 70
1: last year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And are they still kind of hippies or have they kind of moved on and become super capitalists?
2: Uh, I think they're probably halfway in between. They're kind of that sort of middle-class professional people who, um, I mean, my mum, so my mum went on when I was a child. She was a maths teacher, but she went on to study law and become a lawyer when I was young. Mm. And, yeah, by the end of her career, she was working for the nurses' union. And, yeah, she became more radicalised in the last few years than I think now. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah, but definitely that sort of, I guess, variety of activism, which is very, uh, you know, letter writing and um, making, taking taking a stand in a very, uh, I don't know, reserved way mm. compared to other <laughs> more radical actions you could take, I guess. Now,
1: now I'm going to tell you something which I'm sure you're not interested in, but uh, it, 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 it reminded me of something. In 1978, a New Zealand friend of, mine and myself, we bought across one of the New Zealand's first punk bands, Trash of All Nations, and wow. they, and they performed at St. Mark's here in Fitzroy. It was a night to remember.
2: Amazing. Because
1: even then, there was a lot of cross-fertilisation, you know, across the Tasman between people living in a, uh, now pronounce it for me again, A O R
2: or, like, or, or like you what? Rowing a boat. Or, or, to, tahi,
1: is, oh, are we talking about, or, oh,
2: aotearoa. Ataroa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, our, yeah. our, tearoa. Yeah. got to roll
1: the R. And uh, I remember that even at that stage, I, I was broadcasting here at 3CR, and we'd um, do tapes, and we'd mm. send them to a radical radio, radio station at Omaru. Is that is that the right pronunciation? Oh, nice.
2: Yeah, 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 pretty
1: good. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, we we tape it and then we post it. <laughs>
2: wow, that's, that's small towns.
1: Yeah, that's that's how correct. Because sure. there was there were these little little reservoirs of activism in there then in in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Then they would come across, stay here for a few years, and then go back. And some would stay forever, and yeah. some would go back. I assume it's like that now, isn't it?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think people in Aotearoa are more interested in Australia than Australians are interested in what's going on over there. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's changed a bit with Jacinda Ardern, who Australians are a little bit obsessed about. I think it's all around the world. Um, But generally people in Aotearoa, people I know will be talking about Australia more than people here talk about Aotearoa.
1: Right. Now, you mentioned mm. initially about parents and step parents. Are you willing mm. to go down that path?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I say my parents, like, I started out in a sort of hippie household, but I think actually a lot of my parents' ideals were sort of uh, a bit wrecked when they sort of hit the 80s and, and got a divorce in the mid 80s. Right. Mid-80s. right. Um, so I've been brought. My mum's mom, my Catholic, she's Irish Catholic, um, on her, she's O'Brien. Um, right. And we were we lived across the road from the church and we were really involved. And then when they got divorced, it was, yeah, we were sort of uh, shunned from the church community. Mm. And
1: um, As you were. People don't yeah. understand, do they, that uh, if you married a Protestant and if you were divorced, it was against the Pope's mm. instructions. You were just basically persona non gratis.
2: Yeah, well, my dad was brought up Presbyterian. He was, mm. you know, from a Scottish background and he... I think he converted to get married, yes, or at yes. least he agreed to raise us as Catholics. Yes. And then, yeah, when,
1: you know, I think when they divorced, it was, yeah. It was the way. I remember it quite clearly, you know. Uh, people don't understand. They think a Protestant-Catholic divide, and they think there were riots yeah. and deaths and fighting. and They can't believe it, but it was real, and it had profound yeah. impacts on people like you what was it like to be cut off at such a young age from your uh, community that you were familiar with?
2: I mean, it's a, I don't really, it was such a, um, yeah, it was a strange time. Obviously, I was like, you know, because we were at school and we were spending all weekends as well, sort of, you know, it was what we did, that was, that was what we did most mm-hmm. of the time. And then when we moved, so I went from having a stable house and, you know, the sort of community to living with my mum Single parent. She was studying law then, and so it was, and then staying in rental properties. So for a few years, it was sort of a very different experience um, moving around. Mm. And then, yeah.
1: Do you think that you moved around a lot and you weren't able to form uh, secure friendships? Do you think that had an impact on you?
2: Oh, I think so. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's one for myself and the psychologist. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did find like when I got to um, high school, I went I went to one high school through like my first three years, and I had like a small crew of friends. We were the, we were sort of a stoner crew. We smoked a lot of pot and listened to music and things. And there was five or six of us who just stuck together. So I guess I had that uh, later in life. And one of those, you know, I'm still good friends with some of those people.
1: Mm. Uh, what was uh, primary school like?
2: So for the first year or two, I was at Catholic primary school. Mm.
1: What, uh, single sex or Catholic? No,
2: um, just it was a little school attached to the church. So it was just a small school. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think it was – I was really – really into being, like, really into God. I think a friend of mine told me that she didn't believe in God when I was about five, and I chased her into the toilets and told her she wasn't allowed out until she said that God existed. Mm. Um, And I wonder (laughs) where I would have ended up if I'd stayed in in that Mm. church and not been more exposed to different ideas. Uh,
1: Maybe you would end up as a nun. You never know. Mm,
2: Yeah, maybe.
1: Because you can't become a priest, you know that, because
2: you're
1: not the right sex. You know that you can't become yeah. a priest. And even now, you can't become a priest. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I would have. Hopefully, I would have got kind of Christian anarchist ideas. You know, the Catholic yeah, um, yeah. Plowshares type stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. pretty radical and inspiring. And
1: well, it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, those uh, the Christian anarchists when I was younger were basically revolved around West End in Brisbane. And they did crazy things like beating bombs with hammers, you know, crazy, yeah, yeah. crazy stuff. You know, really crazy. Live collectively. I mean, yeah. the, the biggest debate we used to have was about abortion. That was the the uh, the, uh, the thing we didn't agree about. But that's another story. That's not your story. Mm. So, did you find in primary school that you were good at certain things and not so good at others?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I did. Um I did well at primary school i did and school generally I was sort of um, good at maths and good at communicating in 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 English, and that you know set me up to not put too much effort in and be able to sort of sail through mm-hmm. school yeah
1: but what did you enter poetry or writing or you said maths i mean that's unusual, isn't
2: it? Um, well, I was into I was into drama, mm-hmm. theatre when I was a kid. So mm-hmm. I was in like a theatre production at the university when I was really young, when I was, um, probably about seven or eight. Um, and I got I got an award for the most promising young actor at a Shakespearean festival when I was Ooh. in high school, Ooh. which is like something that my you know my parents still bring up at times as my <laughs> probably my, my greatest achievement in life.
1: Well, tell us about this greatest achievement in life. You're now 40, and they're still harking back to, what, when you were about 13 or 14, aren't they?
2: Yeah, it was a, it was a good night.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, my, my parents are both dead, and I, I had the same problem. Yeah, they kind of forget that you grow up and you change and you go in different directions and you poke your tongue at them and then you come back. They, they forget all that. They just remember when you were, you know, the A-plus student. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. So, what was high school like? Apart from the uh, that uh, club, we won't mention the Stonest club you were involved in.
2: Yeah, I mean that was, but that was a lot of my time. Was you know
1: like what, smoking pot?
2: Yeah, smoking pot, or like we used to, and we had to have sitins and smokins and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I also at school, yeah, I was doing theater as well, and um, I don't know. It's hard to remember what happened at school. I can imagine. I was just very focused <laughs> on my friends, you know, in right. my social life.
1: Why do you think that? I mean, you're very good at maths in primary school. Obviously, you've got skills in that area. Why do you think uh, things went uphill after that? People would say downhill. I'm saying uphill. But you concentrated on your friends and not your studies. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I think – I mean, I still – I did some study stuff. I think it was uh, – yeah – I'm not sure. It's just one of those things. You just I mean, it's like that desire to belong and, and mm. that recognition from your peers was more important to me than what was going on at school.
1: Right. So it must I be- went to
2: a very like um I went to a public school, I went to Christchurch Girls High School and it was a single sex school and it was a public school but it was, you know, aspiring to be a private school and it was very strict mm. at that time mm. and very you know, very colonial and... Um, yep. Yeah. It, it didn't interest me as much. No, <laughs> I can Going outside of school. Yeah. And we started going to dance parties. That was the thing.
1: Dance parties of. in New yeah. Zealand? Dance parties? Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah.
2: yeah. What, strobe? dance
1: parties. I outdoor, no strobe lights like the 60s.
2: Um, There was probably some strobe lights and smoke machines. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. So it must have been... Pretty devastating when you were, had to go to another high school after that three years of uh, close friendships and relationships.
2: Oh yeah, I mean it was a, a very hard time. I, had, I left home and then I moved up. My mum had moved up to Wellington mm-hmm. um, when I was ten, and I moved up there at fifteen um, because I couldn't stay at home with my dad and stepmother anymore, mm-hmm. and that was very very hard time. Um, and I went to school there, but I didn't sort of, you know, my heart was always down south. But right. yeah, I spent some time in Wellington after that. Um, yeah.
1: Did you, did you finish high school in Wellington or did you move on to somewhere else?
2: No, I actually came back down to Christchurch and finished high school in Christchurch. My yeah. mum moved down. I sort of I got to the point, I got quite depressed and I was very lonely. And at some point she said, look, if you if you need to go back to Christchurch, we can move back to Christchurch. So we moved back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I was seventeen.
1: Right, that was very good of her. I mean, obviously, obviously in separations and over fifty percent of couples separate, um, yeah. the children are the collateral damage, and we don't really understand that until later on. Yeah,
2: uh, so- I mean, my sisters were still down in Christchurch, so I've got two sisters from my parents' first marriage, an mm-hmm. older and a younger sister, mm-hmm. and then I've got an older brother and a younger brother. Who was my technically my half brother and my step brother from from my dad's second marriage. Mm-hmm. and then my mum remarried once I'd left home. Um and her my stepdad's got two kids as well, two daughters, so I've got two more stepsisters.
1: Do you ever have a Christmas on. parties?
2: No, my my <laughs> birth parents don't really socialise so but we have these epic sort of Christmases where you're going from you know, one Christmas with my yeah. mum and stepdad and then yeah. my my sister will have to then go to her partner's Christmas and then yeah. we'll end up at my dad's and stepmother's Christmas. You know, it's like oh, oh, a that, lot of driving.
1: Uh, I know about it. Who, who are we going to have Christmas breakfast with? Yeah. Who are we going to have Christmas lunch with? And will we be, have enough energy to visit somebody else that evening? Oh, tell me about yeah. it. Look, it doesn't get any better as you get older. It gets worse, yeah. Because they have kids, and they have kids, and it just gets bigger and bigger. It's just terrible. Yeah. So, so, so what happened when you left? Did you graduate from high school?
2: I just went. So, I was, yeah, I went straight from high school into university. I sort of there was an expectation that I'd go to university, and I just went with the flow. Really, mm. I think you know, my mum, my mum was the first person in her family to go to university, and the idea that if it was possible for you to do tertiary education, then you would do it. Um, you That's know. Right. So what was that? Which I think. Well, I, I kind of. Yeah, I studied philosophy. I got involved with politics at school. I volunteered at the university radio station, and. Yeah. I you know I started out studying math. In philosophy and a double degree, but the maths lectures started at eight o'clock in the morning and the philosophy one started at 12 noon. So I decided that I would just stick with the philosophy.
1: That was a bad, was a, that was a bad
2: <laughs> era. Know, really unemployed and <laughs> exactly. un- unemployable.
1: Yeah, look, I'm just going to ask you a question because I'm, I'm a bit confused. I've got a friend who runs mm. the uh, radical philosophy program here at uh, 3CR on Saturday. She only interviews women, all right, philosophers. She said men have got – philosophers have got too much airtime. So what exactly is philosophy? Um,
2: it's, you know, just thinking about stuff maybe in a sort of – in a more removed way. Like um, – and there's different branches of philosophy, obviously – like continental philosophy is obsessed with sort of like the meaning of life and what constitutes um, knowledge and things like that. And then there's more philosophy, which also touches on those things. Yeah. Um, But then there's things like, like I ended up specializing more in logic and... um, Logic? Yeah.
1: What's logic? Yeah, What's logic?
2: Logic is like trying to still things down to almost equations so that you can find out what is true and not true and from the, I guess, from a philosophical perspective. And the idea of, like, arguments being able to be, all arguments being able to be put into those narrow categories.
1: So Um, you went back to maths, didn't you? It's a roundabout way, isn't it? You know, a roundabout way you went... Drop maths, did philosophy, and then you started speaking about equations and logic. That's that's a roundabout trip, I reckon. So can you, look, I'm nearly 70 in a few months, but I still haven't found out the meaning of life. Can you help me out here? Um, Yeah,
2: I think it's 42. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. No, I've been through 42. No,
1: no, no, it's not a bad, it's not a good year, 42, I can assure you. So the philosophy didn't help you.
2: No. Um, but what happened at uni is that I learned like, I... In my first year of uni, we occupied the student registry building for days. To excuse, demand excuse, that me, they,
1: excuse me, excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> excuse yeah. me. You occupy.
2: Yeah. So there was a group of us that got together. And this was my introduction to, like, you know, um, to, to street-level organising. And it was just, like, a group of people who... You know, student body. We decided to take over the registry building, and we went in there and, with our bodies, we occupied it for four days. And it was at the time of like we'd had a national government, like a right wing government in New Zealand for right. you know nine years or something yeah. and in '99. Piggy, um, Piggy, we
1: were, was it Piggy it was, Muldoon's time? Was it Piggy Muldoon's time? Was it? Or after, no, it was Ruth
2: Richardson right, um, right. who like slashed um, benefits. Yeah. Uh, and Jim Bolger uh, and Don Brash, that kind of time.
1: You were kind of the the cutting edge of neoliberalism in the Western world. First it was Chile and South America, and then it was New Zealand, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. Um, I, yeah, and we did it voluntarily. So other places <laughs> did it because they were in a lot of debt. And in Aotearoa, um, you know, in the government, there were these ideologues who were, who were obsessed with uh, neoliberal ideology, and they... And they brought it in. It's called, yeah, Rogernomics.
1: That's right. Uh, I remember those days. Yeah. What's happened to those people? Have they got rich and retired or are they all dead?
2: <sighs> well, hopefully they're dead. I don't, <laughs> know, I don't know.
1: You don't know. But
2: it really, its you know, it has really lasting effects. And I think that it really, you know, it irks me and I have to do this sort of like, there's many, many amazing things about Aotearoa, but actually the the politics over there, it was, you know, the trade unions were smashed we actually, what saved us was in um, the 80s, there was a very, like Māori took a very, um, uh, were
1: militant, were militant, yeah.
2: the court. Well, they were militants, yeah, but they were also organi- like Māori organisations using mm. the courts to mm. um, affirm their treaty rights. And right. so when the government tried to sell all of their assets, like Māori stopped them and said, actually, you can't do that because we have treaty interests in everything the government owns. And that's um so instead of doing that they then said, Okay, we'll just run all these things like health and education and things as businesses to turn a profit but we'll be the you know, the government will be the major stakeholder. But I could spend the rest of the hour just, like, talking about that.
0: No, no, <laughs> it no. It really look,
2: irks I, me. No,
1: no, but it, it, look, it's very interesting because you lived through it. You lived through it, and I don't mm. think – here it was, it's was. it been a bit more subtle and it's taken four decades. There it just happened overnight. What did New Zealanders think they'd get out of all this? Do they think they all become rich millionaires or something? Yeah, I
2: thought – actually, you know what? When I was at university at the, working at the radio station, I did an interview um, with – I've forgotten what his name was, but he was one of the proponents of neoliberalism. And when I spoke to him, he saw us as being it was almost like we like this was where the world was going into neoliberalism stuff. And we were going to be the one who were going to be you know, designing and making the intellectual property. And then we would be sending that stuff overseas for like you know, workers to build and make things that went you know it was almost like a yeah, mm-hmm. would put us on the top of the pile of people desperately trying to survive yeah. neoliberalism as
1: it swept there. Yeah, it's like risks. it's like here in the 1980s and 1990s they did. De- we had a lot of mutual organisations which were formed in the 1880s and 1890s to protect people's interests. You know, health funds, uh, you know, workers' funds, and they were all demutualised voluntarily. People got six hundred bucks and they said, "Oh, wow." I'm getting mm-hmm. 600 bucks, and I've forgotten that they were actually the people who were running the organisations, and then they started complaining a few years later. So why did you occupy the registry office? You never told us.
2: Why did we occupy? Yeah. Um, to stop, um, it was they were talking about increasing fees um, by huge amounts, like, you know, tripling sort of fees to get into uni, and we... Um, And we wanted to stop that. And they were also, I mean, there was also like some other minor sort of um, stuff, but that was the main thing.
1: And did you succeed?
2: Um, Basically, we succeeded in that, I mean, we were part of what elected the Labour government at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And we succeeded in the Labour government, came through with not putting interest on student loans if you were living in New Zealand, and they... uh, Kept fees from going up more than you know a certain amount each year, like it could only go got 5% each year. Mm. But what happened then is that just every year on year it's just gone up 5% and right, it's so it's t- probably at the same time.
1: So was that, was yeah. anybody arrested or did they try to uh, evict you forcefully using the police? Or the police yeah, went the police out?
2: came and yeah. they tried. It was like I think there was one sort of scuffle at the doors, and then it just didn't look very good for the um. You know, I think especially at that, you know, at election time, you can get away with more oh, things you're right. oh, people right. don't want to don't want the news. And we had that, we had the, um, you know, they were doing live, live to ear stuff on T B U in the evenings from from outside and
1: things. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, if you're an activist, that's one time you, if you're going to do something. militant's the time to do it. I remember in 2018 we had a 10 day protest on the steps of the victorian parliament house which was illegal but because it was the 10 days before the election the police came to disperse as a number of occasions but they were ordered back because it doesn't look mm. good you're quite right it doesn't look good
2: i mean and also we were mostly white middle class university educated
1: people so oh the ruling class the future ruling class you don't want to push <laughs> yeah. them around too much <laughs> that's right
2: yeah
1: so how about this radio station on campus what's going on there
2: um, I just I had I had a show on Tuesday afternoon. Ooh,
1: what was the show?
2: It was just at the afternoon drive show. So it was kind of three till five. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I, I did um, I filled in for the the um, terror music show, which was called the Sheep Technique. The sheep. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going
1: down that path. Yeah, um, and yeah,
2: just and then I did, um, I yeah. that
1: was all. Right, and what drew you to radio? Was it part of your philosophy and logic kind of drew you to the fact that you could use your communication skills and look at different issues?
2: Mm, No, I think I was just really interested, I mean I like music I like, yeah, I was really um, at that, when I was that age I sort of was going to a lot of gigs and I felt like I knew like I was more interested and involved in the local music scene. I don't play music, like I, I don't I'm not a, a musician myself, but I have
1: an appreciation for music. I think that's what drew me in. Right. So I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question. Did mm. you graduate in anything?
2: So um, I did. I did graduated with my philosophy, my BA. Mm.
1: Um,
2: yeah.
1: And obviously that opened up huge uh, job opportunities in the public service for you.
2: Yeah. Well, then, I mean, I think... Yeah, I mean, I think that's what my that was where I was heading, and that's kind of what you know. I think my who I am in my class of people we are the we are the paper pushers of middle management and government. Um, but I I went I, I moved to Australia then. Excuse me, in,
1: excuse me, excuse me. How <laughs> old how old were you?
2: Um, so this was when I was twenty or twenty one.
1: Why would but you? You, you seem to have a life there. What would you come here for? Not, uh, not the minor, music scene. My
2: partner's brother was over there at the time. Like my, my ex partner's brother was right. there. And, oh, right. and so he had moved over in, um, earlier in the summer. And then I moved to Sydney. And we stayed there for a few months and ran out of money. And his mum lived in uh, Rosebuds the Mornington Port. So we spent the last of our money on the train down to Melbourne. Mm.
1: Rosebud, oh, mm. 2000 and what, two? Uh,
2: yeah,
1: 2002. And Rosebud, oh, you poor thing.
2: Yeah, it wasn't, there wasn't much <laughs> going on in Rosebud.
1: <laughs> Unless you go there, yeah, New Year's Eve, if you want a bit of music and a bit of writing,
2: in yeah. the good
1: old days, you'd have to go to Rosebud and Rye, but uh, those things were stomped down hard. Yeah, so you come to Melbourne, you've got no money. Typical person from across the straits, you know, the Tasman Sea. Yeah. So, uh, where did you squat? Come on, I can see it coming.
2: Well, actually, it's funny. We um, so my partner's parents, they had um, they had been driving along the road, and then they saw this elderly man outside, huffing and puffing, trying to mow his lawn, and they'd oh. stopped and been like, "Look, we'll give you a hand, and we'll do the lawns for you." And they ended up sort of doing odd jobs for him, for like cash jobs every so often. And it turned out that he was a retired banker and he owned properties across (laughs) Melbourne. And he, at some point, he said, oh, I've got this property in South Melbourne and I need someone to move in to, you know, stop it being squatted and things. And so that's when we moved to South Melbourne, um, to this beautiful old three-story terrace house. It, Um,
1: It wasn't in Ferris Street, was it?
2: No, apparently where oh. remember where, we were, what
1: street it was. Ah, um yeah, well, look. Yeah. Did you consider then uh, rejoining the Catholic Church? Because obviously God was looking after your interests.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> I was very, I, you know, I came out very bitter about the Catholic Church, um, yeah, and it's taken me a long time to sort of come around to the idea that maybe religion is an okay sort of thing, right. just because of my experience as a child, and right. and the right. idea that we would be, you know, it, that would impose those kind of um, demands to, for inclusion in the community. I guess.
1: Right. So that's a good place to start off in Melbourne—a free storey house. I assume it was run down and dilapidated.
2: It was very, like, it hadn't been touched, sort of, since the 60s. So yeah. it was, yeah, amazing inside, but, um,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. And what was the cobwebs like?
2: Pretty big cobwebs. Yeah. Because I...
1: yeah. yeah. When I was younger, I squatted a few of those type of houses, and uh, spiders were our natural companions, you know. Didn't take you long to work out which were the huntsmen, to the nice ones, and which you had to watch out for. They had the little red mark on their back, you know. <laughs> yeah. So this is not a very auspicious beginning, you've got a BA philosophy, you've left your home country, you're kind of looking after somebody else's house in uh, South Melbourne, what happened next?
2: Well then I moved to the northern suburbs, so eventually, um, yeah, my partner's parents moved back to New Zealand, and um, and I moved into, you know, a share house in, in Brunswick, and I back then. I worked for a while on the Sustainable Living Festival, which was just the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell us about that those beginnings with the Sustainable um, Living Festival.
2: Well, I was the I was the community. Why don't I, I organised the stalls for community groups. Mm-hmm. It was like. Um, I would never do it again. I hate event management. It's one of those things where it's like it slowly the stress slowly builds over months, and we'd worked on it for six months, and it was building and building yeah, and building yeah. until it got to this point of of a week of just like absolute, you know, chaos that you just had to ride. But I loved. There was a guy there who was the main site manager for the on site, and he was like in the office. He was, you know, he was a little, he seemed a little bit slack, and he sort of didn't seem to, bit, you know unprofessional and I don't think he sort of, I didn't, I didn't see how it was possible that he was going to pull himself together to, to do the site management and then the week of the festival he was absolutely on top of everything uh, and it was like he transformed into this person who um, knew what was going on everywhere had oversight of staff and uh, was keeping calm while I was losing,
1: losing the uh, plot He reminds me of a butterfly <laughs> you, can't, you kind of see the cocoon or the chrysalis in the corner. You don't worry about it, and then you go, "Wow, mm. uh, I not,
2: think some people, for some people, like event management is really their their thing, and they are able to do that. And yeah. um, I'm not one of those people. I'm more of a like I like to chip away at stuff and just keep things steady.
1: Right. Yeah. Look, yeah. there's nothing. Wor- you're quite right. There's nothing worse than organising events. I've done it a number of my life, and. Because you get criticised when you're organised and then when you finish, you get all these people who haven't actually contributed come up to you and say you should have done this or you should have done that or you should have done that way and they have no idea how much blood, sweat and tears you've put into the event. They don't even care. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: I mean I hate those type of things where it's just the organisers and then people come to consume. They don't come to participate, they just come to consume and I think because they've spent some money it gives them rights, you know. Oh, now you've yeah. got me talking. You were talking about neo Lisbon, New Zealand. Now you've got me talking. About. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting <laughs> carried away here. Well, it's not a very – it's not a good way to make money. You've got this BA philosophy. You're in Melbourne, and you're working for sustainability, you know. so
2: I really wasn't interested in making money. I mean, I think it's probably – that really speaks to my class privilege, that it wasn't like – it wasn't top priority. I was just trying to make enough money to uh, pay the rent and food and stuff, and then – hopefully a little bit extra to mm. go traveling. And so then um, at this time, this is like, probably this is a bit of a, like one of the, the hinges of my life, which is that I came across a group who were organizing a walk from Roxby Downs in South Australia, the nuclear waste, um, the nuclear, the uranium mine there. And they were walking down to Adelaide and Melbourne and up to Canberra to the Aboriginal 10th Embassy and then flying to Japan and walking across Japan to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And um, I decided to join them. Like me and my partner walked from Melbourne up to Canberra with this group. Um, yeah, the International Peace Pilgrimage, it was Cool. cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I sort of, and I was like, oh, this will be, you know, I'm into what they're doing. It'll be a good way to see, you know, the country between Melbourne and in Canberra and then yeah, it really um, you know we met and spoke with a lot of Aboriginal elders and people who you know, whose lands were devastated by nuclear, the nuclear industry and I felt this real strong sense of responsibility once you'd heard those stories to kind of carry them forward mm-hmm. and um yeah ended up going to Japan and walking through japan
1: and what year was that?
2: This is two thousand and three and two thousand and four. I went to Japan in two thousand
1: and four mm. what did yeah. j- what was it like going to Ground Zero in Hiroshima?
2: I mean by that time you know we'd been walking and we'd been walking with uh, monks and nuns who were sort of praying on the way and we'd talked to people all along the way and it was such this like build up to this point and I really, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe how much, how full on it was to think about being there and that time, you know, that sense of the time of year, so it's really hot in, the, in, in mm-hmm. Hiroshima in August and you like you hear about the flies that started up after the, when there was all these, you know, just dead bodies lying out and it just
0: yeah it was it
1: was I I'm kind of lost for words for it, it was moving and it affected me in a very at a very deep level mm. I think it mm. affects most people I, I first time I went to Ground Zero was in nineteen seventy nine It was a personal pilgrimage. I did it with my partner, and we both mm. went there as a personal pilgrimage to ground zero and uh, I mean when you look at it and then you go in and have a look at the museum attached to it, you begin to really realise how incomprehensible it all is, that so many human beings can just disappear, die, for generations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just extraordinary. So you came back to Australia, and uh, have you ever played with the idea of going back to live in New Zealand?
2: Well, so I came back, we got back to Sydney, and um, at that time actually the National Party, the right-wing party had been exposed that the leader of the National Party said look, if we're elected, this is in 2004 if we're elected in a few months um, this is." he was speaking to a, a, I think an American diplomat or somebody mm. from the American government, um, he said you know, the, the nuclear-free policy would be gone by lunchtime <laughs> and yeah, that phrase, and so there's a sort of uproar, and I was like, you know well We've got. I was kind of at this stage where I realised I've been sort of spreading myself quite thin across different... i have been doing anti-war stuff. I was sort of, you know, I came of age over the, the um, 9-11 and the war on terror, you know, and invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and things and doing... I was just spreading myself thin across a lot of different things and I felt like I really needed to have a focus to be like, okay, I can't do everything, I can't solve all the problems but I can do my part in the great sort of movement towards justice and I. And after doing that walk I was like, okay, anti-nuclear nuclear-free kind of work that's where I needed to be and so when they did that I, I went back to New Zealand, we moved back to Ototahi, to Christchurch and then um, I was lucky there's a um, the Disarmament and Security um, office was in there, this, um, Kate Jews, who had been involved in the nuclear-free movement in the, in the late 70s and 80s that had got the nuclear-free policy. Mm-hmm. And she had married this um, British guy, Rob Green, who was um, a ex-Navy person, one of the most high-ranking ex-UK Navy people to speak out against, and now is an anti-nuclear mm-hmm. um, activist. Um, and Kate did this amazing thing where she would get funding and she worked really hard to foster younger people and I got a kind of apprenticeship and you know peace and anti-nuclear organising um, yeah at their office, mm-hmm. the Department and Security Centre and so for the next few years I worked there part time and we were archiving the peace history so it was a lot of going through all of the the history of the nuclear free movement in New Zealand, right. in
1: Aotearoa, mm. and I learned a lot. It was yeah. Mm. Are those archives still functioning, accessible?
2: Yeah. So they went to the um, University of Canterbury, which is
1: in yeah. Well, at, in, at least, at least your what work, say? At least your work's not lost because a lot of you know smaller organisations do all that work and it just disappears
2: mm.
1: when the main people involved kind of move on. So how long did you last before you came back to the land of hope and opportunity?
2: Well, I kind of went through this stage where I was like, I'm never going to get on an aeroplane again. I'm going to eat food just within 50 kilometres. So I sort of got into kind of veganism. This was a time when I, I started hanging out with anarchists. Yeah.
1: And, dangerous move, um, dangerous move.
2: Yeah, but I came, I, I went really extreme with it and I was sort of, you know, I was never gonna buy new things ever again. And mm, yeah. I met this, there was um, over the, over the 20s, the tour, the, the naughties. Yes. Um, there was this anarcho-feminist hui really, or uh, meetings mm-hmm. that happened that were, and so there was people from across Aotearoa who um would meet and, talk about anarcho feminism and we had these annual meetings, and they really transformed, I think, or really radicalized my thinking Mm. about, yeah, how change happens and what needed to change and things. Um, And really, and I also just grew, and I met a group of people as well, it was like I met a lot of, um, like... I've seen that like sort of my queer and and trans family that I started to meet these people who who kind of recognized in me that a lot of things that I hadn't you know without without meeting people and knowing that identities exist it's very hard to see yourself um yeah so that changed a lot of uh my life and it's so it was connected there's this place called One to eight in Wellington, which actually it's a building that burnt down last year. It really affected a lot of people, but there's a lot of people who who were radicalized by their involvement over that time um,
1: mm. yeah, you say radicalized how did you change?
2: I just went from being like a sort of um My understanding that change happened within the government, you know, with elections and that it happened, you know, within institutions of power that, you know, the kind of colonial institutions that existed, that you had to kind of enter those and play by those rules to get to a point where you could change, make change. Mm -hmm. And my understanding then actually, you know, the power exists, you know, sort of like personal autonomy and the understanding that, that we exist, and my understanding around, like, Tēnā Rāngi which is, like, Māori self-determination movement, and my understanding of, like, seeing myself as a settler and living within a colonial... Con- like, like it just sh- it really shifted my understanding. And actually, during that time, so in 2007, we um, the New Zealand had adopted terror laws. They basically copy and pasted the terror laws from the US, in New Zealand, Um, so we have really extreme, you know, anti-terrorism laws, and in 2007 they tried to use them against, you know, activists, and um, like uh, a group called Save Happy Valley, I was part of a group who was trying to stop a coal mine at that stage, and um, we were, yeah, there was police raids on people's homes up and down the country, um, and there was a, They shut down the whole of Ruatoki, which is a small, you know, Māori community. And mm. the police just came in and literally shut it down. Yep. And yep. that at that time, it sort of like it was like the wool came off my eyes, yes. and I suddenly understood. Yeah, yeah. The police are not there to help. The government is not. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: I remember that. I remember that period because we had close contacts then in New Zealand and. Uh, Everybody was concerned, and it doesn't take much, does it? It doesn't take much. People don't understand. It doesn't take much for the iron fist to come out of the velvet glove when you start pushing and prodding. So, when did you return back to Australia?
2: Well, so I kept going, and then in 2000, um, I got burnt out after the after the um, police raid, and I. I, I had to pull back. Were you charged? So were, were,
1: were you charged? Did you need to appear in court? Or? No,
2: the police came to my house. They were looking for my housemate. Mm. But a lot of my friends ended up and were held. And for that first month, they were held indefinitely. Like the police, they were just held at the government's leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that first month, it was. And then there's the, the four people who went through um, and got charged. Yep. Uh, yeah. And in the end, all the terror, terrorism charges were dropped. Um, yeah but um, no so then I went back to do theatre so I decided I wanted to do something for myself that was not activism and I've yeah um, unfortunately I've got this sort of like (laughs) like I just sort of walked away from activism and I did theatre and I went to the Higley Theatre Company and I learnt you know acting uh, directing and stagecraft and I did that for a year and a half and then um, in the early uh, late t- 2010 to so the end of my first year of theater school, they um, we had the earthquakes in Ōtōtahi and Christchurch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first one hit in September, and then we had smaller ones. But by February, we were sort of like, you know, the roads were getting rebuilt and it, it felt like we were back on track. And then the February 22nd one hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was devastating, yeah. Um yeah and it completely
1: changed uh, um, my hometown. Yeah. I can't I can't imagine living in a place like your hometown that's always on edge because historically there's been always earthquakes in uh, New Zealand.
2: Yeah, I mean, you just get used to it. I mean, it's just like, I mean, the the reverse one is for Australians who deal with, like, poisonous snakes everywhere. No, no, and no, people no, in Aotearoa no, would not cope with that at they all. They're just
1: poisonous. Like, st- <laughs> look, <laughs> I, 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 I live out of Melbourne, and there's lots of poisonous snakes. and it It's not like an earthquake, I can assure you. They look at you, you look at them. Yeah. You, you don't move, and they go, and they slide off. But, you know, no, it's not the same. Come on. It's yeah, like a living... But it's
2: just the same. It's their kind of fear, like just—I mean, it was very. It was—I mean, uh, we were all anxious wrecks during the series of earthquakes that happened. Yeah,
1: I can imagine. Yeah. Look, I just—I yeah. just had this funny thought in my mind, which I want to share with you. You say it was the Hegley Theatre Company. Is that correct?
2: Hegley.
1: Hegley. Okay. I can imagine yeah. you knocking on the door with your Shakespearean award when you were fifteen <laughs> and saying, "I want to work in theatre. Did you do that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. No, I, I had to. I had to do an audition, and I.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah. What's been happening in the last few years of your life? And so we got- well, So
2: then. Um, yeah. So mid 2011 mm-hmm. I um I moved. I came back. There was another. So my my friends who had organised the um. The international peace pilgrimage they had organised, and I'd still felt this real need to come back to Australia because there's not a lot of anti-nuclear, nuclear-free work to do in Aotearoa. Mm. They do get uranium um, shipments that go through Aotearoa ports, and there's no regulation of it, but that's another story. But I felt like you know there's still mines here, there's still nuclear waste, there's still a reactor in Sydney, and I need to come back to Australia if I was you know committed to. Doing that work, and so my friends had done a walk. They organised a walk from Waluna, which is north of Kalgoorlie, down to Kalgoorlie and then into Perth. And I, I, I got rid of all my stuff, and I, and I thought I'd finally go travelling. Like I've ne- never gone further than Australia, and I thought I'd finally get further than Australia. And so I sold all my stuff. and I thought I'd stop in Perth, and that's halfway there. You know, I could go travelling from there. Mm. But I got, I went and did that walk, and fell in love and then just also got pulled back into that anti-nuclear organizing in perth and and then I was back in Australia yeah.
1: <laughs> for the next last and, ten, um, uh, yeah for the last ten years you've been back in Australia,
2: well, yeah, I lived back and forth between uh, between uh, Tai and Perth for uh, five years and then um two thousand and fifteen I went over, well i've been so I went to um I went to France with an nuclear walk. And in 2015, we went to the US to do a walk. Um, and, yeah, I met my partner who's in Melbourne, Nam, and I decided, yeah, mm. moved in 2016 right, back here.
1: Right. Look, yeah. the, you've done a lot of these walks. Um, mm. I've, I've done a few walks, but um, I've always been concerned about that, especially in Australia, about those fundering trucks as yeah. you're walking, how, how do you cope with all that? I mean, you've done so many of these walks and uh, many of those highways, all you have is B-doubles and, you know, after B-double.
2: Yeah, it's pretty full-on. Especially in Western Australia, they have the huge, the, the long train mm. trucks. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you just wear you wear fluoro gear and you have someone up the front with a flag to warn them. A lot of the truckies will like once you tell them like the company will then, you know, they'll be um, on their radio, yeah. little communication things, and they'll tell each other, um, yeah, and yeah, it's sometimes a bit scary.
1: Oh, well, it can be, it can be, because it is. <laughs> yeah. And and here's another question: mm. Did you see any of those famous Japanese tourists who cycle around Australia? When you were walking?
0: No. What? Um, I, I, well, I've, I've even yeah,
2: seen Yeah, not those. out there. We not actually out there. saw, um, oh, and I've totally forgotten his name, somebody, Walker, who was the guy who walked from Perth to the Aboriginal 10th Embassy, the Aboriginal guy. Right. We came across him on the side of the road on right. the way back when we were driving back. Mm-hmm. So basically, we did that big walk in 2011. And then we were invited back by Keita Muir, who's like a yeah. Aboriginal community leader up in Leonora. And then we would do a month-long walk every year yeah. over his country that he invited us back to yeah. with his uranium mines. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, near Waluna.
1: It looks like you've had a great life. We've only got a few minutes left. I'm going to ask you, mm. in, c- in case we have anybody under 40 listening to Radical Australia, do you have any advice? You seem to have a led a full life and you've made a lot of interesting decisions about the way you want to live your life. Do you have any advice for young people who are thinking of embarking on the radical journey? I think probably um,
2: I think probably my advice would be you know you need to to know who you are and figure out your own stuff so that you can stand strong in who you are and so you can really come to these things as a full person and be humble um, in approaching things i think and I think what I try and like my what I've tried to learn in the last few years is also really acknowledging what land you're on and, and understanding that that we're all on stolen land and, and uh, you know learning and, and understanding that that is the basis for everything that we do mm-hmm. It's where everything comes from <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: and <laughs> yeah. are, are you involved in any particular campaigns you'd like to maybe leave a web address for people to look
2: at Sure I mean I'm um, at the um, Friends of the earth so.org.au au. Um we d- we have an anti nuclear campaign there. Um and I'm trying to think of what else I could tell you. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's my yeah, main look. one. I'm also I'm also um I volunteer with pay the rent in the admin arm, so um paying the rent I think is really important and that's paytherent.net.au. dot net dot au. Mm-hmm. hmm
1: Well, look, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Obviously, we've only touched on the extensive things you've done in your life, but uh, I think we have won in this exchange with that place across the Tasman. And and, and if I was uh, the current Prime Minister there, I would uh, give you a grant to go back. And, uh, well,
2: hopefully we uh, will be going back soon in the bubble, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <And> we'll <laughs> do, at least for a holiday.
1: Yeah, and if you if you do go back permanently, I'll do a crowdfunding campaign to bring you back because <laughs> obviously, obviously you've done an extraordinary amount of things in your life and it's been a pleasure talking to you, AC, and I look yeah, after you yourself. All the best.
2: Great. Thanks, joe <laughs>
0: If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR, 10am Saturdays. Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. shop organic and buy local made easy at friends of the earth a proud 3cr supporter you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au